I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Americans have been fighting the war on drugs for two centuries, and we continue to lose. Is there a better way? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Despite stringent restrictions on opioid prescribing and dispensing, more people died from overdoses last year than in previous years. What are we doing wrong? Why should harm reduction be a crucial component of any humane drug policy? Are some people in severe pain committing suicide because they can no longer get relief? We'll learn about the history of addiction and what we might do differently. Can we learn from other countries, such as Portugal? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, new approaches to reducing the harm from addiction. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, many people have welcomed dramatic drops in COVID infection rates in the U.S. Now, however, a new variant called BA2 is becoming dominant. In New England, it accounts for nearly three-fourths of the cases that have been analyzed with genetic sequencing. Nationwide, it's caused more than half the cases sampled. Although BA2 is more contagious than the original Omicron, it does not appear to make people sicker. While many states are beginning to see increases in cases, so far, hospitalizations are down slightly rather than rising. This week, the FDA issued emergency use authorization for a second booster against COVID. Both Pfizer and Moderna will be offering an additional mRNA immunization for people over 50 or those who are immunocompromised. Many people wonder whether they should get a fourth shot. Others have not yet received an initial booster. The Omicron variant took off at the end of December and didn't drop until early February. Vaccine effectiveness tends to wane after about four months. That suggests that people who received a second or third shot last fall may have declining immunity. On the other hand, there's not a lot of data to support boosting the booster. Israeli data suggests that people over 60 do get added protection from dying of COVID. But vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit points out that the study was flawed in that the participants all volunteered for the injection, and younger people got only modest benefit. At this time, scientists don't agree about the best timing for a second booster. Ivermectin has attracted a great deal of attention as a potential treatment for COVID-19 infection. A new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine did not demonstrate effectiveness in preventing hospitalization or serious illness. This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial included 3,515 patients. A hundred patients who got ivermectin had a hospitalization event, compared to 111 on placebo. That difference was not statistically significant. Even when the researchers considered only people who took all their assigned pills, there was no difference between groups. Metformin is the number one most prescribed drug for type 2 diabetes in the world. It was first approved in France in 1957 and has been used in the U.S. since 1994. 
Although it's a very useful medication, a new study in the Annals of Internal Medicine reveals that this drug may be associated with birth defects in male infants. The data come from Denmark, where medical registries tracked 1.1 million births between 1997 and 2016. Men who took metformin in the three months before the babies were conceived were more likely to have offspring with abnormalities. Specifically, 5.2% of these babies had some birth defects, compared to 3.3% of those whose fathers did not take metformin. This difference is 1.4 times higher. Genital defects were very rare. However, they were three times as common among baby boys whose fathers had taken metformin. The totals were 0.9% among exposed infants and 0.24% among unexposed newborns. If the fathers had taken metformin the previous year, there was no impact on their sons. Only the prior three months when sperm were being formed seemed to make a difference. The scientists call for further research to confirm their findings and clarify the mechanism. The diabetes epidemic has been increasing at an alarming rate. A new study in JAMA Pediatrics shows that the incidence of prediabetes in young people 12 to 19 years of age has doubled over the past 20 years. In 1999, it was 11.6%. By 2018, it had risen to over 28%. In other words, more than one in four adolescents are now at risk for developing diabetes and its complications as they get older. Prediabetes is usually a metabolic condition associated with overweight. Some experts point to increased screen time, reduced physical activity, and exposure to highly processed foods as all contributing to this worrisome condition. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The United States has been conducting a war on drugs for more than 50 years. So far, we've been losing. In 2021, the CDC reports that more than 100,000 people died from opioid overdose, up 28% from the year before. What went wrong? Why haven't the strategies that have been employed work to keep people from abusing and dying from drugs? Later in the show, we'll talk with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. But first, we turn to Maya Salovitz. She's a reporter and author who has won awards from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology for her work on addiction, drug policy, and neuroscience. Her most recent book is Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. Maya Salovitz, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Thank you so much for having me. Maya, you write in your wonderful book, Today, overdoses kill more Americans annually than guns, cars, or breast cancer. That just took my breath away. I mean, the pandemic has only made things worse. It's like, wow, this war on drugs, it has clearly not worked. Why not? Uh, well, because you can't fight a health problem by locking people up. 
and you can't fight addiction by cutting the supply. What we've done in terms of the medical supply is it rose um, following 1999 and it stopped rising in 2011. It then fell um, about 60%. During that time, overdoses skyrocketed even further. So basically what we did was we took people who were on pharmaceutical opioids, which aren't safe to take recreationally, and then pushed them to street opioids, which are even less safe and thereby worsened the problem. Maya, you begin your book, Undoing Drugs, with your own story. I wonder if you'll share that with our listeners, please, so that they have uh, some idea of how you came to this topic. Sure. So in my late teens and early 20s, I became addicted to cocaine and heroin. I was in college. I felt very left out. Come to find out later that I'm probably on the autism spectrum. But drugs were an interest that people were interested in that I was obsessive about. And so I felt like I could bring something to the party. And without drugs, I just felt kind of bereft. So so I was basically a really, really geeky kid who always felt isolated and unlovable. And with opioids, I found that they made me feel warm, safe, and loved. And so I became addicted to them. Now, when I was a graduate student at University of Michigan in the Department of Pharmacology, one of our professors told us about something called speedballs. He said, there, there is no more addicting substance than putting an opioid together with cocaine or methamphetamine. And he talked about the Vietnam War and how when a soldier was wounded on the field, the, the medics would sometimes give them that combination that's what you were taking, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it really is an intense experience. The thing that I find interesting about addiction, though, is that as pleasurable as that particular combination can be, that isn't what really addicted me. What addicted me was the escape and the feeling of safety and comfort. I was trying to not be depressed. I was not trying to be extra happy. So, um, you know, we can talk about the pleasures of drugs and they certainly exist, but it's kind of a distraction from why particular people end up in trouble with them. Because many people will have a speedball like experience or have fentanyl for surgery and have this 10 seconds of bliss. And they'll be like, oh, my God, I better not touch that. That's really dangerous for me. I don't want to lose my job or my wife or my cat or my kids. Whereas somebody who doesn't have anything and then they experience that bliss, it's going to be a very different story. Absolutely. And you do talk about harm reduction, again, right at the very beginning of your book, with a very compelling story about how you encountered it. Would you share that with us, too? Sure. So I was injecting it what must have been one of the dumbest times in history, and HIV was already infecting about half of IV drug users in New York City. But I had no idea that I was at risk. And I was at a friend's house and a friend of his came by and we were waiting for him to go and buy drugs. And she told me that I was at risk and that if I had to share needles, I should clean them twice with bleach and then twice with water. And the guy who had gone out to score for us 
actually was HIV infected unbeknownst to us at the time. And so I believe she saved my life with that information. Maya, can you tell us what harm reduction is and why it's so critical? Sure. So the idea is in drug policy that we should focus on reducing harm, not on stopping people from getting high. And that seems kind of weird to people who are always obsessed with, but what if they take the drugs? Harm reduction doesn't emphasize that. The whole idea is let's keep people alive and healthy and safe and not care if they get extra euphoria. And it came out of the AIDS years when people realized that, you know, AIDS was at that time fatal and spread by needles. And we could either try to force everybody to get into abstinence instantly, which doesn't work, or we could save their lives. And, you know, we know that obviously I'm here to tell you people do recover. And in fact, most people do recover if they are allowed to survive their active addiction. But people were sort of so afraid of sending the wrong message about drugs that they didn't want us even to have information to protect ourselves. I think that the idea that most people do recover if they survive is a really important message. And I appreciate the fact that it's included in your in your book. Um, I do want to ask you about how the harm reduction approach differs from other approaches people have taken to trying to fight addiction. Sure. So basically, we have this cultural idea that tough love is the only thing that works and that the way to stop addiction is to shame and humiliate and stomp people into the ground then they'll hit bottom and they will get into recovery and all will be well. The problem is that bottom isn't really a thing. It can only be defined retrospectively. And what I mean by that is that if you hit bottom, you say you hit bottom, you go to recovery meetings and then you relapse. Now, do you have a new bottom? Do you have a bottom with a trap door? It's a narrative device. It's not a scientific one. And when we actually look at what works to help people recover, it's being kind to them. It's giving them hope. It's bringing them in, not throwing them out. And so that's what harm reduction does. It meets people where they are. It says, we want you to live whether you're using or not. And we want to make your life better and safer. And how can we do that? Maya, you write in, in the book that reducing opioid prescribing has actually been counterproductive in the sense that it can increase disability and suicide for people who are in severe pain, chronic pain, and can no longer get opioids. And medical societies have punished doctors who prescribe opioids. So why has that initiative not been? been more effective? Well, you can't treat either addiction or pain by cutting off somebody's opioids. That is not how addiction works. That is not how pain works. But what we decided is we don't care what happens to these people. We're just going to cut them off. And then that will either miraculously cure their addiction or pain, or they can just go sit in a corner and die for all we care. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre because the people who push these policies recognize that without providing instant treatment to people, that there were going to be casualties from this. And they did it anyway. Now, you have just pointed out that there is a lot of 
collateral damage from cutting back on opioids. We have heard from people who have been desperate. We have heard about people who have committed suicide because they couldn't get their pain under control. And we've heard from doctors who have been punished by their medical societies for prescribing opioids to people in severe pain. Well, what's weird about all of this is that it's driven by a false narrative. It's driven by the idea that most of the people who get addicted to prescription opioids have a prescription for them. In fact, 80% of them do not ever have a prescription for them. They're starting with drugs that they diverted from somebody's medicine cabinet or got from family or friends. When you look at addiction rates amongst pain patients who were screened for prior addictions, they are extremely low, less than 8%, according to the New England Journal of Medicine and the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So the idea that most of the people who got addicted were pain patients and that most pain patients get addicted, both of those ideas are false. And yet we continue punishing pain patients by cutting them off to symbolize that we are trying to fight addiction. It seems to me, Maya, that uh, part of the problem is that people have this idea that if you are addicted to anything, that you're a bad person and there's an, a moral judgment. What can we do about that? Yeah, we have these, this idea that these drugs take your soul and turn you into a zombie. That is simply false. And what we need to do is recognize that addiction is a medical problem and it requires medical solutions, not moralistic judgment. You're listening to Maya Salovitz, a journalist who writes about neuroscience, drug policy, and addiction treatment. Her previous books include Unbroken Brain and The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Her most recent book is Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. After the break, we'll find out how well a harm reduction approach can work. How do other countries utilize harm reduction in the context of drug addiction? Since the war on drugs hasn't worked, should we see how other places are addressing drug use and addiction? We'll also talk with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. He says it's misleading to call addiction a disease. How should we look at it? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. The United States has been losing the war on drugs since the early 1970s. Even if Einstein didn't actually say... Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That observation applies to our approach to drug abuse. What other strategies might be more effective? To consider other approaches, we're talking with Maya Salovitz, a journalist who writes about neuroscience, drug policy, and addiction treatment. Her most recent book is Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. Maya, how well does a harm reduction approach work? Much better than everything we are currently doing. If you look at the data, it's pretty overwhelming. Let's take needle exchange, for example. It does not encourage people to continue using. It does not encourage kids to start using. In fact, people who participate in needle exchange are five times more likely to go into treatment to address their addiction directly than people who don't participate in needle exchange. So all of the fears about this intervention that prevented us from preventing a lot of HIV um, are just false. And there's just study after study showing that when you introduce a needle exchange to a community, you get less problems, you get less HIV, you get more recovery. You don't get kids looking at people going to the needle exchange and saying, yeah, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, it's just not how it works. And I was interviewing a person um, in the harm reduction field, and, and she's often asked, you know, well, what about the children? What if children see people, you know, getting free drugs or getting free needles, and they think, like, that's a thing that is very good? And she turns it around and says, I don't want my children to see people abandoned. I don't want my children to see people just left to die because they do something we don't want them to do. I want compassion. Maya, you just mentioned free. And I know that there are an awful lot of people who have a hard time swallowing that that idea. But I'm curious about other countries. In other words, if someone has an, an opioid use disorder, if they were in England or the Netherlands or, or perhaps some other country, would they have access to free needles, free drugs? And how does that affect the dependency problem in those countries? Sure. So I want to make a distinction here between addiction and dependence. Addiction is compulsive drug use that continues in the face of negative consequences. Dependence is needing something to function. We're all dependent on air and water. Some people are dependent on opioids for pain or for the treatment of addiction. That doesn't mean that they're still addicted because their lives are getting better. So in other countries, what we see is that heroin prescribing works. You see reductions in new users, you see improvements in health, and you don't see any deterrence of people going to other forms of treatment, including abstinence. So it is enormously successful in the places where it's done, and it is so well-researched now that there is a Cochrane Review, which is the highest form of medical evidence, and it shows that for people who, for whom other approaches have failed, 
it works really well. And again, these are the people with the most severe addictions and the most severe mental illness. So we know that if it is working in this population, uh, you know, it's a pretty effective approach. Can you summarize briefly the goal of a harm reduction approach? It's basically to improve people's lives. So the measures of success in harm reduction are, is somebody getting a job? Is somebody able to be there for their family? Is somebody able to do the kinds of things that we want them to do? We don't care, you know, they may be smoking crack, but we don't care about that outcome. We care about, is it destroying their life? Is it destroying the life of their family? And when we do harm reduction, we meet people where they are, we help them meet their own goals, which may be like, okay, I'm just going to smoke crack on weekends or something like this. And, you know, maybe they achieve that and then they can get a job and then they can be more productive. Or maybe they find out that, ah, that doesn't actually work and they need abstinence. So then we help them towards that goal. So it's all about helping people find out what works well for them and getting them to the pathway that is going to make them most healthy. My uh, uh, poor, poor Albert Einstein, he, he has been uh, credited with the phrase that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. It turns out he didn't actually say that. But that concept, it resonates for us. And, and it seems like after how many years now, decades, 50, 60 years, people would begin to say, you know, our efforts to, quote unquote, win the war on drugs have completely failed. Uh, there, There is still crime. There is still a lot of addiction. There are a lot of homeless people on, on the streets. Why don't we come up with something that actually could work? And, and if we look at other countries where harm reduction has been employed, can we say, well, it may not be perfect. It may not be 100%, but way better than what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at Portugal, which decriminalized drug possession, they did not have massive outbreaks of teenagers saying, oh, wow, now I won't go to jail for drug possession. I'm going to go and get high. Uh, that did not happen. Drug use among young people is no different from comparable European countries that didn't decriminalize. They have less HIV. They have less overdose. Now, the thing that is also different there than here is that they have national health care and they have housing available to people. And so, you know, when people look at, say, harm reduction that is being done in places like San Francisco, where we see a lot of people out on the street, you can't just solve that by stopping arresting people. Now, stopping arresting people in the long run is going to help because arresting people reduces their odds of recovery. Um, but in terms of getting them housed, it's not going to fix that. But if you do have a comprehensive social safety net and you do harm reduction, you can see remarkable things. Again, it's harm reduction, not harm elimination. And the thing about drug policy is that it's always about minimizing things, not eliminating them. And when you, you can look at this when we look at COVID and harm reduction, because a lot of people were like, okay, don't socialize, don't do anything. Just stay inside and you will be safe. And that's not a realistic goal for most people. 
So we had to do things, harm reduction things like use masks. Now we have vaccines so we can, you know, go beyond. But the, at the time when we were first dealing with this new virus, the idea that there was going to be no risk behavior was an unrealistic one. And it's the same thing with drugs. The other thing I want to note here about drugs is that we talk about illegal drugs as if there's something different from alcohol and tobacco, which are legal. And people recover from alcohol problems and from smoking all the time. We don't have police chasing them down. You know, if somebody commits an actual crime under the influence, then we deal with that. But the idea that you can treat somebody with addiction by putting them in jail or forcing them into treatment that they don't understand and is not effective for them, it's just not going to work. Maya, you have suggested that we should consider dismantling the Controlled Substances Act and uh, drug schedules, you know, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, 3, and 4. Why do you think that would be a benefit? Well, basically, they're not scientific. We schedule drugs without testing them first. So, for example, there could be a cure for cancer that is now illegal because we decided that we are going to put it in the schedule because somebody misused it for something. We make drug policy in a series of moral panics. We don't make drug policy based on the, the relative harms. This is how you end up with Schedule 1, including marijuana, LSD, and heroin, which are all extremely different drugs with extremely different risks and benefits. And it shows right there that the origin of our drug policy is really about racist and anti-immigrant panics, not about this drug is more dangerous because you could never end up with tobacco legal and marijuana illegal if you were going strictly on the harms that are done to the people who use them. Maya, when we talk about uh, drugs and drug use, you suggest that it's important to use person-first language. What is that and why does it matter? Sure. So when we're talking about depression or schizophrenia or other conditions, we now use person-first language and say person with depression, person with schizophrenia, not depressive or schizophrenic, because we recognize that people are not defined by their illness. And so with addiction, that's especially important because it is so stigmatized and criminalized. So when you say person with addiction as opposed to addict, you are recognizing their humanity and saying that these are people first and that we should care about their lives, regardless of the fact that they're taking a substance that we don't like. You mentioned stigma and we have a way in our society of really, and I suspect other societies as well, really looking down our noses at people who have a drug problem. I'm wondering if that also has penetrated the medical profession, because I suspect that when a doctor learns that a patient has a problem with, let's just say, heroin or opioids in general, or maybe even cocaine or methamphetamine, or perhaps even one of the hallucinogens, that there's a moral character to their relationship with that patient. It's like, oh, that's very different from high blood pressure or diabetes. How do we 
go about changing that, especially in our professional schools, our schools of pharmacy and our medical schools? Well, this sort of goes back to fixing the Controlled Substances Act, because doctors and people with addiction have become natural enemies because doctors see people with addiction as those people who can lie to me and make me lose my license if I prescribe to them. So this has created antagonism. And it's also created a situation where addiction medicine is not part of the rest of medicine. Like we don't have, for example, if you go to jail and you have cancer, you get your cancer meds. If you go to jail and you have addiction, you are told that you cannot have your addiction medication because it is seen as illegal or immoral or, you know, somebody else might smuggle it or something like that. It's not treated as a health condition because we have so criminalized it. And this definitely applies to the way doctors and nurses and other health professionals treat people with addiction. So many people with addiction avoid medical care to the point where they're dying because they know that they're going to be yelled at and they're going to get looks and they wouldn't be given stuff to prevent them experiencing withdrawal. They would be laughed at. They would be called drug seekers. They would be called to get out of my emergency room. There's a whole bad history there. And we need to revise medical education to actually emphasize that addiction is a medical problem and should be among the things that doctors treat. How do we begin changing our medical structure? I mean, the DEA is pretty much in charge of um, the whole drug abuse problem in America. You've suggested maybe it should be the FDA. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we don't have a law enforcement agency in charge of any other aspect of medicine. And again, if we're going to believe that addiction is a medical problem, then let the FDA handle drugs like methadone or buprenorphine. The problem is there are these Supreme Court decisions and the Controlled Substances Act that have this idea that if you provide medication for the comfort of somebody with addiction, that is not a legitimate part of medicine. And the Supreme Court actually said this in 1919. And so if you are, say, prescribing heroin, which we now have a big, a lot of data suggests works, um, that is actually straight up providing for the comfort of somebody. Now, if we're providing heroin for pain, the comfort is the whole point. But we have such stigma against people with addiction that we, you know, have this entire apparatus of law enforcement that comes between doctor and patient in a very dangerous way. So yes, the FDA should regulate medications. So Maya, if we put you in charge, if we said you are now, pardon the terrible phrase, the drugs are in America, how would you change things? What would it look like? So the first thing I would do is stop people getting cut off from opioids immediately when doctors discover that they may have an addiction or the doctors are concerned that um, I can't prescribe this high dose because I'm going to get legal scrutiny. I would, you know, we're doing harm by cutting people off from medical opioids. We're not helping them. We need to stop that immediately. The other thing we need to do is decriminalize drug possession. There is absolutely no use in spending hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of dollars incarcerating people for possession over and over and over again. 
People do not get treatment in jail. They get cut off from treatment in jail. It is not an effective way of diagnosing a problem. So those are two things I would certainly start with. And then I would really like to see revisions to the Controlled Substances Act and a more rational way of understanding what the problem is in addiction and with certain drugs. Each drug needs different policies. Um, the policy for LSD and psilocybin may be very different than the policy for heroin. And you need to figure out where the sweet spots are for minimizing harm and yet making drugs medically available when they are useful. And also we have to be aware of the historical racist inequalities that are associated with drug enforcement. And again, reducing that and figuring out better ways of dealing with the fact that human beings are always going to seek altered states of consciousness. That's where I would go. Maya Salovitz, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Maya Salovitz, an American reporter and author who focuses on science, public policy, and addiction treatment. She's won awards from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. Maya Salovitz is the author of several books, including her most recent, Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. We turn now to Dr. Carl Eric Fisher addiction physician, bioethicist, and assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University's Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatric practice focused on addiction. Dr. Fisher is the author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Dr. Fisher, we've just spoken with Maya Salovitz about her new book, Undoing Drugs. And she told us about her experience with drug dependency. I'm wondering, would you be kind enough to share your story? Of course. Yes. So I struggled with alcohol and then later stimulants, mainly in the form of Adderall, throughout my medical school career and the earlier part of residency when I was a doctor in training. And it all came to a head when I was on a vacation and went on a massive alcohol and Adderall binge, which through pure luck and also a bit of privilege landed me in the psychiatric ward at Bellevue's, Bellevue's Hospital, one of the notorious public hospitals of New York City. And there I, I, I had to face up to the fact like I had addiction and went away to treatment, which again, I was lucky to be able to access and was guided through the process as a physician. But then you know, afterward, I was still sort of wondering what had happened to me. How do I really make sense of addiction? There were lots of great things that came out of that experience uh, but there was uh, there was a lot that w was sort of mystifying too, that was confusing and sometimes contradictory. So th that's the thing that, in a way, uh, was sort of the final straw for me pursuing addiction medicine as my own career and uh, trying to understand the phenomenon a little more deeply. Well, have you, as you've just mentioned, you do addiction medicine. 
Can you tell us, please, why you say it's misleading to call addiction a disease? We have heard people claim that. Yes, I I worry about calling addiction a disease while recognizing that it's a double-edged sword. Here's why. I've seen it help a lot, both in the history and in contemporary discourse. Calling addiction a disease helps to get hospital coverage, helps to get funding for addiction treatment. In some cases, it might even enhance personal care and compassion for people with addiction. But on the other hand, uh, both in my studies and also in my practice, I've seen that it can be harmful, that the notion of addiction as a disease can be dehumanizing and fatalistic, that it can kind of prompt some social distance, like people don't want to be around people with uh, the disease of addiction. And throughout history, the notion of addiction as a disease has even been used as a weapon. So in the end, I think it's just confusing. We have to drop the label and look deeper at what we actually mean when we use addiction as a disease in all of these sometimes slippery ways. Why do you think there is just so much controversy, so much misunderstanding uh, that's still raging about the fundamental nature of addiction? And and it seems like, you know, everybody has their their pet approach to dependency or addiction and, and we don't have any clear guideposts. Well, two questions come to mind, and I, I think we could probably come up with more. One is, how have people struggled to understand this phenomenon over history? I think even before we had a name for addiction, people were struggling to understand issues like self-control and self-discipline. And we can trace that all the way back to Aristotle, other Greek philosophers, Buddha, the early Christian theologians like St. Augustine. Uh, So it is a really challenging problem that cuts to some of the deepest questions in philosophy and spirituality. But then the other reason that I think uh, the study and the understanding of addiction can be polarizing is that it has a lot of historical baggage, that uh, throughout history, people have sought to divide up people by good drugs and bad drugs, and the right kind and the wrong kind of drug users And all of those associations can contaminate the issue and cause the the notion of addiction to be burdened with a lot of ideas and biases that we're we're not always conscious of. Now, when we talk about addiction, what give us a, a, a definition we can grab onto, please. Sure thing. I like to say that addiction is a strong devotion that takes away willpower. And what I mean by that is deliberately to invoke an older sense of addiction. Actually, when addiction first entered the English language and the word addict, it was actually much broader and deeper and richer than the way we often describe it today. It didn't mean an all or nothing condition. It didn't mean an extreme condition. And it didn't mean uh, being taken over by an evil drug. Everyone could be addicted. Addiction was just part of the human struggle with some of those things I mentioned earlier, will and self-control. And um, you could be addicted to good things and you can be addicted to bad things. The point was that it pointed toward this sort of gray area between choice and compulsion where everyone seems to struggle with self-control. And I, I think it's really useful and it has been useful for me as a clinician and as someone in addiction recovery to recognize that broader and more universal aspect of addiction 
the notion that addiction exists in all of us, uh, to bring a little more compassion to all the ways that uh, we can we can go awry in those efforts. When I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, on the bottom in the basement of the building that we we worked and studied in, uh, there was a monkey colony. And um, I think most of the neuropharmacology folks just thought of this as a a brain problem, a, a neurochemical problem. You know, let's just study monkeys and then we can figure out, you know, what's going on with cocaine or heroin. But there's also, a, a, I'd say, a competing approach, and that is, well, what about the social and economic conditions? So how do we, how do we thread the needle between neurochemistry and social medicine and economics? Well, I think you're exactly right to identify those multiple levels. And addiction is such a complex phenomenon that no one approach could ever possibly provide all the answers. That's a trap we've fallen into over and over and over again as a society, tend to, to swing between approaches that emphasize, say, reductionist science, or on the other end, approaches that tend to emphasize more of a grassroots mutual help approach. And all of these things have a lot to offer. I, I've gotten benefit from those two approaches, for example, from mutual help recovery organizations and from science and medicine. Uh, but the attempt to reduce addiction specifically to one level is something that has misled us again and again to say that addiction is primarily a brain disease or that it's fundamentally something to be found in biology. Biology matters a great deal to the study of addiction. And today we're lucky to have medical treatments, including medications that absolutely save lives. Uh, but sometimes the pendulum has swung too far. And if we privilege one level of explanation, we miss out on all of that beautiful complexity and nuance therein. You're listening to Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction physician and bioethicist. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University's Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatry practice focused on addiction. Dr. Fisher is the author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. After the break, we'll consider why there's a lot of money in drug addiction, but not a lot of success in treating it. Do we have any evidence on which programs might be effective for helping people overcome addiction? Dr. Fisher tells us about the Portuguese experiment decriminalizing drugs. What's his evaluation of the war on drugs? If Dr. Fisher were in charge of addiction policy nationwide, what sorts of treatments would he establish to make a difference? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients. Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at kayabiotics.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Opioid addiction has been a problem in the United States since the 19th century. Our attempts to deal with drug and alcohol abuse have had limited success. Are there better ways to help people overcome drug dependence? We're talking today with Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. He's an addiction physician, bioethicist, and assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University's Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatry practice focused on addiction. Dr. Fisher hosts a podcast called Flourishing After Addiction. His book is The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Dr. Fisher, there is a lot of money in drug addiction. First of all, you've got the manufacturers, whether they are making opioids or whether they're in the mountains of Afghanistan. You've got the dealers who are taking a huge amount. Then you've got incarceration and you've got prosecution and you've got defense and you've got treatment centers, big business. And you've got drug companies that are offering meds to treat addiction. So, you know, A, there's all this money in this problem but not a lot of success. What went wrong? Well, the money in many cases undercuts our efforts to adequately respond to addiction. There's so many different threads we could pull on there, but the one of the first things you mentioned are these massively powerful industries, what one researcher has called addiction supply industries, which have existed since we've had a trade, any sort of commerce in drugs going back to the introduction of tobacco to Europe and Asia in the 1500s, 1510s, 1520s, uh, societies have repeatedly faced these sort of twisted externalities of the trade in mind-altering substances, including, and in a way, especially uh, alcohol and nicotine. And uh, these these addiction supply industries have always sought to push their products. That doesn't make them evil. It's just what companies are designed to do when they're in a system organized around profit. So uh, the problem becomes that they they twist our understanding of addiction in various ways. And that, there have been many examples when that has directly undercut what you're talking about, that they've the, those efforts to to twist the understanding of the the dangers of their products has directly negatively impacted our, our attempts to successfully treat people with addiction. But let's not forget the treatment. I mean, that's also big business. Absolutely. You know, the medical profession is still playing catch up in a way uh, because back in the, say, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, uh, because of some prior failures, but also because of some racist and xenophobic moral panics around drug use, the medical profession largely retreated from uh, the treatment of people with addiction. And so in the in the intervening years, many, many other potential treaters have rushed in to fill the vacuum, some with good intentions, but some are just outright hucksters and swindlers and con artists. And uh, we, we still see evidence of that today, that uh, addiction care is a totally segregated system of treatment. I see it every day in people who are looking for care that 
you know, you can imagine, I'm sure most of your listeners uh, know somebody who's had this experience. If someone's having a serious uh, drug problem, where do you go? Who do you trust? It's it's often some separate institution. It's not part of an academic medical center usually. And uh, there are all these conflicting notions about how and where to get care. So I think you're absolutely right that the incentives are somehow misaligned and that uh, there's a lot of money going into treatment, but it, it doesn't seem to be all that effective in part because of our, our fragmented and ineffective system of dealing with addiction. In fact, it seems as though people in the, you know, running the various programs are only too happy to run the other programs down, to denigrate them. Do we have any evidence about which programs, which behaviors, which treatments might actually be effective? We absolutely do. And we've had uh, good evidence going back to, say, the 1990s or even the 1980s about evidence-based treatments, treatments like relapse prevention therapy, other types of psychotherapies. And there's also a set of evidence about the different varieties of treatment and recovery that people can experience. So I personally am a beneficiary of a very traditional go-away-to-rehab, abstinence-only approach. That, in a way, saved my life. But that's not right for everybody who has a substance use problem. And a big problem with our current system is everybody who has any kind of substance use issue tends to get slotted into one one size fits all approach. But in reality, since the 1980s, 1990s, perhaps even earlier, you could say uh, we, we've known that people recover along different pathways and that uh, it's, it's more effective to meet people where they are, support them, obviously, try to protect their lives and don't be cavalier about somebody who, say, for example, is refusing to pursue abstinence, especially in today in the era of fentanyl. We have to be very, very careful about people with serious problems who say, for example, want to moderate their use. But the point of all this is to say some people still do use drugs, even when you recommend abstinence to them. So I, I think we could be doing a much, much better job of meeting people where they are in a therapeutic context and then supporting them with some of those evidence-based treatments I mentioned earlier. Now, Maya Salovitz has suggested in her book, Undoing Drugs, that one way to do that would be basically to decriminalize, uh, make the drugs available, uh, follow the Portuguese model. Uh, any thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm calling in from Portugal right now, in part because I'm interested <laughs> in this question. So hello from Lisbon, where I, I'm really curious about decriminalization. Uh, it's... It's a really hot topic right now, as I'm sure you discussed with Maya, and it's a it's been a hot topic throughout the the history of drugs and drug use. I don't think that we can look at decriminalization in isolation. I think the thing that people miss about decriminalization is it's not a single lever that you can pull separated from all the other social medical justice-related policies that might come to bear on drug policy. The Portuguese experience was not just to decriminalize drugs. The Portuguese experience also included a, a huge commensurate investment in social policies, economic policies, providing people structure, housing, and uplift 
allowing them the opportunity to pursue meaning and purpose through work. All of those things are absolutely crucial. Now, while I'm saying this, I'm worrying that some people might think that I'm on the side of prohibition. And I'm, I, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of ways that our current system has swung way over too far into harsh prohibitionist crackdowns. And that's not the answer either. I think the challenge for us is to find that healthy place in the middle where we do have some common sense regulation of mind-altering chemicals while also being attentive to the fact that some people do have problems with drugs and will need help and they'll need other sort of social supports to, to help protect them. Dr. Fisher, in your new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, you take us through the history of how we humans have struggled to define and treat and control addictive behavior for a really long time. With our treatment and recovery systems currently failing us, how can we find a way out? Well, I do think that there's hope. There have been many times throughout history where we've missed the boat and our responses to addiction have been misguided. And I do look around today and see so many people coming forth and sharing their experiences. And I myself got a lot of strength from people who came before who shared their experience with addiction and recovery. And I, I think that one of the crucial things that we need to do is to change consciousness around what addiction and recovery means. So if we can do that, and if people have more of a humanized and more of a direct relationship with what it means to have addiction or what it means to be in recovery, I, I think that that very perspective is the thing that allows us to cross the ideological divides and the, and the bitter divisions that sometimes stand in the way of a more compassionate and holistic and nuanced, multi-level response to the problem of addiction. Now, Dr. Fisher, you say something pretty provocative in your book that basically addictive behaviors are present in almost everybody. I'm kind of curious, why, why do you believe about, you know, there's, there's this stark binary, addicted versus normal, that's an illusion, that, that that we're all vulnerable to something. I mean, you know, some people are addicted to TikTok. Not me, mm. but I suspect that there are teenagers who are, or Twitter, or chocolate, which we happen to be very fond of. Yep. Or, in some cases, OxyContin. So help us understand this, this illusion of addicted versus normal. One of the things that I think has caused... Uh, such incalculable harm over time is efforts to try to stamp out or con otherwise control addiction, to conquer addiction, to declare war on addiction. Usually those efforts have caused more harm than good. I don't think we'll ever see the end of addiction. I, I think there's tremendous possibility and hope for recovery and for working with the kinds of suffering that feed into all the varieties of addiction you just named. But acceptance is the answer accepting that addiction is a part of human life, that the processes that go awry in somebody who has a severe issue with addiction like I did are, are no different in kind than the types of problems with self-control and with other types of psychological vulnerabilities that everybody has. I see it every day in my patients, people who struggle with work or with external validation 
or with checking email or with food. I, maybe those people don't necessarily identify as being a person with addiction, and that's totally fine. It's not my point to try to convince anybody to adopt a label. Rather, what I'd like to do is uh, raise awareness to the fact that these things are part of all of us. And if we can abandon this dream of eradicating it as if it were some sort of special, uniquely distinct part of human life, then that that very acceptance is the thing that frees us to look at the full variety of interventions that uh, allows us to meet the challenges of addiction with more care and more compassion and more flexibility. Why do you suppose that the medical profession treats addiction differently from other mental disorders? Or, or is that not correct? No, you are absolutely correct. And that's a major, major challenge today. I've seen it myself in my own medical training. When I was eventually able to return to psychiatric training, and I went back to the psychiatric clinic at Columbia University, there's one patient who sticks in my mind who was not drinking as severely as I was at my worst, but we couldn't take him into our clinic. And that's not because the people at who were supervising me, it's not because the people at Columbia were malicious or they didn't care or they, it wasn't even that they thought that addiction wasn't a real problem. It's just one element of a structural stigma that we have a historical legacy of these separate and unequal treatment systems for people with addiction. That uh, is partly a historical accident from the way that the medical profession has retreated from the care of addiction. And it's partly a legacy of the, the hatred and the moral panics, uh, especially around racism and xenophobia and other forms of oppression that attached themselves to heavily, heavily stigmatized views of addiction back in the earlier part of the 20th century. So we would do very, very well just to do a better job of integrating addiction care into the, into the rest of mental health care in the same way that we would do a good job to integrate mental health care into the rest of general health care. Why do you think that the war on drugs was um, a culmination of, of how bad science and faulty understandings of addiction have been weaponized by the drug industries? Yeah. Let me say it this way. There were, there were some particularly troubling interpretations of science uh, that fed into the war on drugs. And... In many cases, the scientists themselves were right on the money, but the way that those scientific understandings were translated to the general public and then used and then weaponized against people who use drugs were deeply, deeply misleading. And the classic example is dopamine and this narrative of hijacking. So dopamine came about and started getting more scientific attention almost by coincidence around the same time as the crack epidemic in the 1980s. The thing about dopamine is that it's very powerfully activated by stimulants like cocaine. So it became sort of the model for addiction. And people talked about dopamine as if it had some uniquely powerful property to instantaneously and irresistibly make people addicted. Now, I think we should say that dopamine is a natural neurotransmitter. Our brains make it. Exactly. And it's not just about pleasure. And it's not just about, it's not that drugs have some sort of special property that's any different in some 
uh, in some categorically separate way uh, from other types of rewarding behaviors. Uh, dopamine was twisted into a story about how drugs hold all the power, uh, even while the scientific field had moved on beyond some of those pleasure-oriented understandings of dopamine. So it, it's a reflection of something that actually happened, for example, back in the first temperance movements in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, when there, there was really powerful movements afoot to try to outlaw alcohol consumption. And there was a scientific office of temperance instruction that tried to use science to advocate for those claims. But really, the science was just kind of retrofitted onto the prevailing social attitudes about alcohol. There were these notions, for example, that alcohol activated nerves in the stomach and that that created unrelenting hunger for alcohol. So I think we have to be very careful about how scientific discoveries are translated and understood because the end result was that certain narratives about the irresistible and the unconquerable hijacking of the brain by dopamine-related circuitry actually fed into and enabled the war on drugs. Dr. Fisher, if we were to put you in charge, not of the DEA, but basically of the entire question of drug addiction in America, whether we're talking about alcohol or nicotine or cocaine or opioids or methamphetamine, whatever, whatever category of drugs. And we said, okay, there is now an office of addiction and Dr. Fisher is in charge. And we have had abysmal failures up until this day when you are now the czar. What would you do? How would you change things? What kinds of programs would be most effective? What would be your magic sauce? Joe, first, I wouldn't take that job. It sounds like a rough job. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, I, I think there's a lot we could do. There are a lot of lives that we're leaving on the table in the sense that there are very simple and straightforward reforms that we could do to save lives. We desperately need to mainstream addiction care. We desperately need to enhance access, especially to life-saving medications like methadone and buprenorphine. And uh, there are lots of other sort of cumbersome restrictions on addiction policy that we could lift that would save lives. And I think if we got all of those wish lists, plus harm reduction wish lists, like expanding access to evidence-based harm reduction services like syringe service programs and supervised consumption facilities, and I could go on. There's a lot of things that we could do that would save lives. And we've known that with a pretty high degree of certainty for a fair number of years now. And so the, the real question to me is, is not what should we do in a perfect world. The real question to me is why haven't we been doing it? And I think that question goes back to the understanding of addiction. It goes back to our, in, in many cases, inherited and implicit ideas about what we think addiction is and all of these contradictory and slippery and, and really legitimately challenging efforts to understand how things go awry in this, in this terrible condition that, that affects so many of us. Dr. Fisher, how do we begin to change attitudes in our educational process? And I'm talking primarily about medical education, nursing education, pharmacy education. I mean, we we have had so many, hundreds and hundreds of people tell us, well, my doctor won't write a prescription for opioids for my surgery 
because he doesn't think that opioids are safe anymore. Or somebody who says, I've been in chronic pain ever since an automobile accident. The pain is is so severe. I, I contemplate suicide on a daily basis, and now I can't get access to opioids. And we've heard about people actually committing suicide because they can't get the pain relief they deserve. And we've heard of pharmacies where the pharmacist gets a legitimate prescription for oxycodone and won't fill it. So help us understand about the educational process, the stigma, the the basic shaming of somebody who has a, a problem with drugs. It's such an important point because we have a real opioid overdose crisis. And now we also have a developing pain crisis where the reactive policies are leaving people stranded. And pain patients are in many cases now uh, vulnerable to all of these stigmatized notions that you just raised, that uh, the, the pendulum swings back in the other direction, and all of a sudden people can't access legitimate pain relief. That's a huge, huge problem. You asked about education. I'm not sure it's a problem with education. Uh, I, I don't know that any amount of education in the world would counteract what's really going on here, which is fear on the part of providers. I think in most cases it's fear. Maybe sometimes it's also a more malicious kind of stigma or apathy or lack of caring. But ever since the government got involved in the regulation of drugs, which dates back to, say, 1914 and the Harrison Act and some earlier policies where uh, these divisions between good drugs and bad drugs became formalized in law, the, the medical encounter has been infused with this fear that uh, a physician might get uh, a knock on the door from the DEA or otherwise investigated or punished or a pharmacist could somehow fall under scrutiny uh, for prescribing a totally appropriate medication. And that is one of the barriers to, say, for example, buprenorphine and methadone, that they're these totally separate systems of regulation. It, It People who want to prescribe buprenorphine, for example, which is a life-saving medication for opioid use disorder, have to go through this special kind of Byzantine process to get a special license in addition to their normal medical certifications. And a lot of people don't go through that process because they don't want to be in this class of sort of odd quasi-medical treatments. We don't do that with Adderall, which also has harms. We don't do that with benzodiazepines like Xanax or Ativan or clonopin, even though those types of medications do have harms. Uh, it's preposterous that, say, a, a physician on day one of their medical training could prescribe something like morphine, but then they can't prescribe buprenorphine until they go through some specialized treatment program. So I think the, the fundamental problem really is that there, there are these tangled webs of, of regulation and stigma, uh, not just implicitly, but explicitly institutionalized in law. And policy. And, and Dr. Fisher, it's not just law enforcement or the, the DEA. Uh, medical societies are complicit in this process. I mean, I've, I've heard of doctors who have been punished by their medical society because they prescribe buprenorphone to, to patients who uh, were controlling their dependency. And controlling it quite well. But the medical society says, well, wait a minute. 
you're prescribing too much of that drug to too many people. And as a result, health professionals get spanked and sometimes get run out of the profession. Yeah, the stigma around medications runs so deep and it's a bit sad because it's often attributed to 12-step. I've heard people say that you know, 12-step abstinence-only approaches are the reason why um, medications for addiction treatment are stigmatized. I think it's, it runs a little deeper than that. If you look at the early history of people in 12-step fellowships, such as Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, there was a lot of careful and nuanced discussion about the harms, but also the benefits of using medications to treat uh, mental suffering, mental conditions, mental problems. They were aware, for example, of the dangers of the sort of earlier waves of sedatives back then in the 40s, 50s, 60s, but also recognized that uh, there was a, a place for appropriate medical treatment. And I say all that because I think it's important to get clear about where that stigma is coming from. I think it runs a lot deeper. When we have such strong stigma attached to legitimate and evidence-based medical treatments, some of that stigma runs back to, say, the Nixon years and attempts to crack down on methadone. But some of it runs much, much deeper uh, to the way that we have this sort of like really fragile relationship with drugs we tend to swing, especially in the United States, it seems, from a sort of hedonistic embrace all the way over to a sort of Calvinism, that drugs are wrong and suffering is good and uh, it's better to be, quote unquote, all natural. And uh, you know, some of that goes back to theological ideas about self-discipline and self-will and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And, and some of that we could trace even earlier to ideas about possession and sin and purification. Uh, so, you know, I think we're long overdue for a much more rational and calculated assessment of uh, what are the actual benefits and harms of drugs. We're so far away from that kind of sober calculus that it, it almost boggles the mind. I'm wondering, Dr. Fisher, if you could uh, address the idea that individual people may need different sorts of treatments. Yeah, well, we know that certain people will be attracted to different treatments. We know that certain people will drop out of certain treatments. We know that some people, for example, will do just fine in a traditional treatment, while others will, say, for example, relapse. And unfortunately, in far too many treatment facilities, the rule is, if you relapse, if you're not abstinent, you get kicked out of treatment. Not everywhere. And I think there are actually some hopeful signs that this is evolving. But the ultimate point is that uh, in reality, people are going to have different reactions to drugs and different reactions to drug treatment. It, it, so why wouldn't we have different levels of care and different modalities, meaning different ways of uh, trying to treat and respond to their, to their drug and addiction problems? Uh, there's good evidence that if you meet people where they are and support them along the way, uh, that, that doesn't stand in the way of abstinence. That doesn't convince them that they should continue drinking and using drugs. In fact, what I often see in my own practice is if somebody decides to go about moderation, even if I'm making the recommendation, hey, listen, I think you should give abstinence a shot, as long as we pay really careful attention to their safety, 
and, and, and be really conscious and clear and honest about how it's going or how it's not going well, that, that attempt at moderation can be really good data. Sometimes it works uh, for people who don't have a severe addiction, but then uh, sometimes people are are able to get the data from the attempt at moderation to say, okay, well, you know, I give it a try. And in fact, the um, some of the original text of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says exactly that. If, you, if you're not sure you're an alcoholic, go out and, and try and experiment in controlled drinking. I don't want to be cavalier. I don't want to say that people should uh, kind of throw caution to the wind and uh, just go and try whatever they want. That can be very, very dangerous. Again, also in the case of opioids because of the contamination of the drug supply with fentanyl and other extremely strong opioids. Uh, but again, the reality is not everyone is going to get on board with one, the one dictated form of treatment. Dr. Fisher, we all remember the misguided, I think we can say, war on drugs. Mm -hmm. There was the campaign, just say no. Uh, there was the um, commercial, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs, uh, the fried eggs in the, in the hot pan. Um, why do you think those kinds of moralistic approaches have been such a failure? Well, they've been failing for hundreds of years. And so a really important question is why do they keep on coming back if they're not helpful? As early as, say, the, the 16th century, 17th century, as tobacco was spreading across Europe and Asia, there were these moralistic associations attached to tobacco. People compared it to the, the habits of the supposedly, and I quote here, barbarous, beastly, and savage Indians uh, in the so-called New World that tobacco was taken back from. And uh, across, the, across the entire Eurasian continent, uh, there were massive crackdowns. In Russia, they cut off people's noses. There were death penalties in certain places. Uh, others were excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Uh, in Japan, you could have your property seized for using tobacco, and none of it worked. And none of it worked. And so when was the war on drugs? Was the war on drugs with Nixon? Was it back in the 1920s when a lot of drug use was criminalized? Was it was it earlier than that? I mean, we can we can trace the war on drugs as far back as we look to the history of drug use and addiction. Because throughout history, people have always sought to divide people up by good drugs and bad drugs. So the point of me saying all of this is that, is that the war on drugs is not a rational response to drug harms. Uh, the war on drugs, however you cut it, whether it's the 80s or the 70s or the 20s or whatever, is, is really just an attempt to divide up people by good drugs and bad drugs. And it's just not based in the actual harms of drugs. Dr. Fisher, you are in Lisbon, Portugal, a place where they have made some interesting changes in the way in which they deal with addiction. Could you give us a little overview on the Portuguese model and how well it's working? Sure. I'll try to be brief. And uh, others, including Maya Svalovitz, uh, have written at more length about the Portuguese model. There's a lot of information out there. Uh, the point that I want to emphasize is that the Portuguese didn't just flip a switch and decriminalize drugs. The Portuguese were facing a drug crisis and overdoses, and what it prompted was a, a very uh, admirable, holistic set of wraparound responses that included housing, 
social services, and access to medical treatment. So when Portugal decriminalized drugs, what they did is they didn't say it was legal. You can't pull up to the Lisbon docks with a speedboat full of heroin and start selling it out the back. That would be full-on legalization. What they did is they decriminalized small amounts for personal use. That doesn't mean that anybody can go around uh, suffering from extremely severe addiction. If somebody is having problems, if, say, they're disruptive in public or they appear to be dangerous to themselves, they can be brought before a, um administrative sort of tribunal. Uh, the word tribunal makes it sound worse than it actually is. Uh, it's not a criminal uh, body. It's a it's a group of folks who attempt uh, basically attempt to educate and encourage somebody to seek help and to seek treatment. Uh, so that's a really, really important point that they took the public disorder and, and sort of like public enforcement related element of drug policing, you could call it, and, and just took it out of the the criminal realm. They made it purely administrative. And so somebody wouldn't have a, a record to try to reduce stigma and to try to lower the barriers to help people get into care and get into treatment. So I think, again, I think it's important to look at this in a holistic picture. I think we've, we've swung way too far over on the, on the side of prohibitionism and harsh crackdowns. And when, when we correct for those harsh policies, which for too long have been used to oppress uh, the urban poor and black and brown people, uh, we should also, there's also a moral imperative to provide for people's real needs and to look at the deeper causes and conditions that uh, are associated with, with harmful drug use. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, thank you very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. You've been listening to Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, He's an addiction physician, bioethicist, and assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University's Division of Law, Ethics, and Psychiatry. He also maintains a private psychiatry practice focused on addiction and hosts a podcast, Flourishing After Addiction, Exploring Addiction and Recovery. Dr. Fisher is the author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,296. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You could subscribe to our podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. This week, you'll find extra information from both our guests in the podcast. Dr. Fisher addresses the problems of stigma and shaming and how we can change attitudes in medical education. Ms. Salovitz describes why she advocates dismantling the Controlled Substances Act and why she thinks the FDA would be better than the DEA at trying to prevent harm to drug users. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast, 
and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.